Hey everyone, it's Pacific. Uh, literally almost nothing to talk about this week. Um, tons and tons of stuff to talk about. Uh, not next week, but the week after, um, as soon as we're into October. So this week, I want to take a moment and give a huge shout out to the Good Point podcast team. Coming up next is a quick little brief I put together about this super duper cool show. Uh, so stay tuned and check it out. Hey everyone, it's Pacific. I want to take just a moment to tell you about my new favorite podcast, The Subjective Truth. It's a paranormal docudrama about UFOs, ghosts, reincarnation, and liars. An amateur podcaster disappears while searching for the legendary Force Finn treasure. A disgraced former sportscaster attempts to uncover the truth, only to find that everyone has their own story to tell. The Subjective Truth is part treasure hunt, part paranormal docudrama, and part true crime satire. And it has an awesome, immersive, modern synthwave soundtrack, which are words I never thought I needed when listening to a podcast, but trust me, it's amazing. And you'll probably recognize a few of the voices, such as Addison Peacock, Sarah Golding, and Danielle Ellett, who all work on the subject of truth. If you're a fan of SCP Archives you're going to love The Subjective Truth. Listen to Season 1 of The Subjective Truth from Good Point on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Uh, and now, I want to give a huge, huge, huge shout-out to this week's patrons. And of course, that means you. Ryan Donahue, Asher, Anti Chicken, Jonah Hertz, Nick Brayton, Marcus Crichton, Tanner Scott, Stefan Nelson, Book of Lies, Andy Clark, and our two ACAS supporters, Soiled Sorcerer, and at 8 Dead Zombie 3. Thanks, guys. Your support means the world. And of course, if you're interested in hearing your name at the top of the show, getting access to bonus and ad free uh, content and episodes, and so much more, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash scp underscore. P-O-D. And now, without further ado, this week's episode. Warning. The Foundation database is classified. Unauthorized access will result in detainment. Within this archive, you'll find the procedures, descriptions, and accounts of the most notorious anomalies we've encountered to date. Secure. Contain. Protect. Item number SCP 1762. Object class Neutralized. Special containment procedures SCP 1762 1 is held in a standard containment unit at Site 72. During the periods when SCP 1762 1 releases SCP 1762 2, video logs are to be recorded for future research. Although instances of SCP 1762 2 have been deemed harmless, they should not be allowed to exit their containment unit. Description: SCP-1762-1 is a plain cardboard box that is 32 centimeters by 20 centimeters by 26 centimeters. It is spray painted silver on the interior and exterior, and the words "Here be dragons" are handwritten in black permanent marker on the lid of the container. Opening the lid of SCP-1762-1, when it's not in the process of release, reveals it to be empty. SCP-1762-1 will infrequently open and initiate a release of SCP-1762-2. During this time, 
The box will briefly emit a large amount of black smoke that quickly dissipates. It takes an average of 20 seconds for SCP-1762-2 to emerge after the smoke clears. SCP-1762-2 is a collective term applied for beings that emerge from SCP-1762-1. All instances of SCP-1762-2 bear resemblance to various types of dragons in both Western and Eastern depictions, albeit in forms similar to that of origami models. Analysis of SCP-1762-2 reveals that they are composed of cami paper. After exiting SCP-1762-1, instances of SCP-1762-2 will fly together in large groups and interact playfully with any nearby personnel and each other. SCP-1762-2 vary in length from 9 to 30 centimeters. All are capable of sustaining flight once they exit SCP-1762-1, and have been recorded attaining speeds of 15 kilometers an hour. The number of SCP-1762-2 varies with each opening of SCP-1762-1, with numbers ranging from 50 to over 400. After approximately 2 to 3 hours of time spent outside of SCP-1762-1, all instances of SCP-1762-2 return and fly back into SCP-1762-1. During this time, SCP-1762-1 will once again begin emitting smoke, and instances of SCP-1762-2 will vanish after passing the rim of SCP-1762-1. SCP-1762-1 closes once all SCP-1762-2 have returned to it. The next date of release is inconsistent. A message written or carved into varying material will sometimes materialize on top of SCP-1762-1's lid once a box retrieves all instances of SCP-1762-2. Attempts to send a message or recording device back with SCP-1762-2 have provided negative results. These documents and their appropriate dates of appearance are being compiled and recorded. Addendum 1762-01 On 3-28-2004 SCP-1762-1 began to undergo a series of events that lasted 11 months and 28 days. These events, as well as prior incidents that led up to the beginning of the scenario, have now been classified under the title, The Jabberwocky Event. Addendum 1762-02 Documentation of the Jabberwocky Event Document 1762-1 Date Obtained 04-5-2004 this is the first recorded instance of SCP-1762-1 opening while contained at Site-72. You have found us! Thank you! It has been so long since last we saw each other, friends. The peace has been upheld. The giants and the behemoths have kept their word and have not caused any trouble since you last came and gave the order. We missed your company. How has your family been? Do you still know how to work your room? You are welcome to visit any time. Document 1762-4. Date obtained 04-11-2004. It's strange to see how much your world has changed. It is even stranger to see how we now appear in this place. In fantasy, we are much bigger. Or maybe you've grown taller. Fantasy is still the same. We hope you can visit us like you used to. Though our room is as grand as ever, it appears yours has... shrunken. We do not understand. The rooms were supposed to be maintained, as was our agreement. Please restore the belief. Document 1762-6. Date obtained. 7-9-2005. Only 20 instances of SCP-1762-2 appear during this event. 
Said instances did not lift off and instead walked slowly on foot for the whole period they were outside of SCP-1762-1. Friends, we apologize for our few numbers. We have had to remain in fantasy for quite some time. The others are growing impatient. We are trying to keep the peace, but please, for all of our happiness, repair the room quickly. We know that you are trying. Your family is the most imaginative of us all. Document 1762-14. Date obtained, 7-31-2005. Along with 10 instances of SCP-1762-2 appearing, three balls of yellow crumpled construction paper were expelled from SCP-1762-1. These pieces were observed to shake violently for five seconds, then cease all further movement. They were picked up by SCP-1762-2 and returned to SCP-1762-1. The giants were foolish. Your room was not ready to accept them yet. We're sorry, friends. We hope that we can still see you. But time is growing short for our happiness. Document 1762-15. Date obtained 5-16-2006. Five instances of SCP-1762-2 emerged, carrying said document. They immediately returned to SCP-1762-1 after depositing it on the floor. Tensions are rising. Fantasy is becoming darker. We, the serpents and the hybrids, are furiously trying to hold them back. But the giants and the elves wish to strike and make an entrance. They say that your family has grown stupid and ignorant. We hope this is untrue. It would sadden us all greatly to know that you have forgotten. Document 1762-16. Date obtained 62206. A single red instance of SCP-1762-2 emerged from SCP-1762-1. Its wings were torn and it was noticeably crumpled. It collapsed onto the floor one minute later and did not move again. Upon its expiration, the body of SCP-1762-2 rapidly unfolded and revealed a message written on the white side of the paper. War. Goodbye, friends. Two hours later, SCP-1762-1 opened and emitted flames that reached two meters in height and temperatures of 1,700 degrees Celsius. Sounds of distant roaring were heard from within SCP-1762-1. At 20 hundred hours, a large amount of torn paper pieces and paper balls were ejected from SCP-1762-1. Several damaged SCP-1762-2 were also expelled and were deemed deceased upon examination. SCP-1762-1 continued to sporadically open and close for the next six weeks. During this time, it continued to emit fire as the amount of paper discharged from it steadily decreased. Matter resembling muscle and tissue was continuously expelled from SCP-1762-1 at increasing frequency. SCP-1762-1 remained closed and inactive for the next seven months. Document 1762-17. Date obtained 2 2009. This document was discovered laying inside the interior of SCP-1762-1. It was written on parchment, and many of the words have been blurred or stained with blood. Are... are you still out there, friends? We miss you dearly. Fantasy is no longer safe. Our haven, 
your beautiful creation is gone. The giants are dead. The centaurs are dead. The birds have fled. We are going to bury your room. We cannot risk hurting you. This is our goodbye. Maybe one day, your family can build another room. This may be a hollow hope, but we will cherish this thought. One hour later, SCP-1762-1 began to shake and emit smoke for 15 minutes, after which it began to sag and collapse. Several portions of the box began to char and tear, creating small burn holes throughout. The words, Hubie Dragon, on the lid of the box were burned away. Document 1762-18, date obtained 9-21-2012. This is the final message obtained from SCP-1762-1. It was written in ink on a papyrus scroll, and also depicted a scene of painted, mountainous landscape filled with large trees and waterfalls. A single winged dragon can be seen in the background. It appears to be flying away. The message is written in black in the bottom right-hand corner. Master says that we won't see you again. We are sad. So are the remaining others. We once filled each other's heads with dreams and goals. It is so sad that we cannot share them any longer. Master says that we have to go. He says that he will make us a new fantasy. He says you cannot be a part of it. We are sad. We love you. We will not forget you. We are scared. Will you forget us? On removal of document 1762-18, salt water began to leak from SCP-1762-1, and the burn marks to cover the container began to disappear. Three minutes later, SCP-1762-1 had been restored to its original state. The words here be dragon were replaced with the words, here were dragons. The Jabberwocky event is declared concluded with this occurrence. Addendum 3 Since the end of the Jabberwocky event, SCP-1762-1 has shown no further anomalous properties and has been declared neutralized. SCP-1762-1 and three deceased instances of SCP-1762-2 now reside in researcher Yoshihiro Takanaka's office for commemorative purposes. Addendum 1762-04, update, December 31st, 2015. After nearly eight years of inactivity, researcher Takanaka reported SCP-1762-1 began emitting purple smoke and spontaneously opened at 2300 hours, falling to the floor. It dislodged a single chunk of crystal, later identified as amethyst, and a large leather-bound book. The contents of this book appear to tell various species that once lived within the world of SCP-1762-2. But from what the author has written, all organisms mentioned are likely extinct. This book is now classified as 1762-BOL-1. The amethyst crystal had the following words carved into it. One last time. After falling, SCP-1762-1 continuously emitted smoke for the next 40 minutes before ceasing all activity. Upon trying to pick up SCP-1762-1, Takanaka reported the box proceeded to disintegrate upon touching it. Its remains are now kept in a containment capsule in his office. Hey everyone, it's Pacific, here with a quick ad break. 
All right, thanks for listening, and enjoy the rest of the episode. You hold in your hands the paper keys, the keys that can unlock fantasy. When I first discovered this wondrous land, I could scarcely believe everything before me. The spiraling and floating mountains that reached so high that the rings of clouds were still below them. The great waterfalls that sprayed down from the ancient rivers that flowed through forests with trees wise and full of knowledge. The oceans with their golden beaches and cool, lapping waves that never roared nor stormed. And the life within. Such unique and wonderful creatures that walked through this fantastic world. It took years for me to gaze upon them all. Who knows, I may have had more to see. I can't see them anymore, though. The land is now barren and cold. So empty and sad that even the icy ridge that lines the northern forests would offer more warmth. Everything has vanished. All the wonder gone. All the vibrant, amazing things this world once had to offer disappeared. I still wonder where they went. I doubt I will ever know. All I do know is that I have my books, my stories, and the memories that are already beginning to fade away as I grow aged and alone in an old man's mind that still believes a long-lost fantasy may return. I don't think I'll live to see them come back, but I leave these stories to whomever finds them so that they can know that they did exist. Alifox When dawn shines through the trees of the soft-needled forest, you can find the alifox humming through the giant lilies for a morning meal. A beautiful two-headed bird, slightly larger than a full-grown man, with downy rainbow feathers that quiver ever so slightly as they run through the warm morning breeze. The alifox has four wings that are more akin to an insect's than a bird's, but they blend seamlessly with the back of the creature. They are jeweled and delicate, and they catch the early rays in such a way that they glint and shimmer. The alifox's heads each sport a single large crest which changes color from one bird to the next. Their eyes are round and a deep purple, their beaks gold and slender, and their cries. The cry of an alifox is sublime, a smooth, crisp and echoing warble. The heads take turns as they call out, one rising, one falling, one rising, one falling. Alifox eggs are pure white until the chick comes close to hatching, during which they will turn vibrant shades of pink, green, blue, and gold. The chick is no larger than hand, and like any other infant bird, naked and blind for weeks. The first coat of down is white as well, but as it grows older, colors will show through, layer upon layer, until a full array of hues coat the bird. I had the great privilege of seeing an alifox nest myself after many years of exploring the soft-needle forest. Before, I had to rely on the records and drawings from the dragons. They're built on the ground, nearly as wide as a dinner plate, 
interlaced with the branches of the thorny ivy to keep predators away from the chicks. The interior is matted with tufts from the downberry bushes. Indeed, the berries themselves are brought back to feed the young. Of course, I could only marvel a few precious minutes before the parents returned and proceeded to fiercely chase me away for a good quarter of a mile before they turned back to their eggs. Nonetheless, I felt a great deal of happiness knowing I had witnessed such a rare sight with my own eyes. Bumpkles. An enigmatic and, dare I say, frightening creature, the Bumpkles. The dragons themselves say they do not know how or when the Bumpkles arrived in the Black Rock forests to the north, but they have lurked within those rugged trees for centuries now. I dared not travel into the Black Rock forests alone. The place crawls with animals of the night and is a place of mystery and fear. The good wizard Garen and the dragon Darwinth accompanied me all the way, and I am forever grateful for their willingness and courage. As the Black Rock Forest loomed nearer, I began to remember tales of bumpkle encounters. Some poor, brave soul who went exploring alone when the ashen trail was not yet made. What dreadful and terrifying experiences they must have been. Half a mile into the trees, and the sunlight was already almost completely blocked out. We relied on the soft glow of the carpet moss and ringed mushrooms. The mosquitoes were vicious to the wizard and I. Another fifteen minutes of walking, and we saw our first bumpkle. Or, to put it more accurately, bumpkles. Five of them, all hunched over as they croomed over a carcass. From the dim glow of plant life, I could see the muzzle of what may have been a waddle grunt. All of us halted, afraid to disturb the creatures. Easily thirty, even forty feet tall, a single clawed bird-like foot and leg that rose all the way without any other limb or torso until it connected with the head. A giant rounded thing covered in thick matted down. The two enormous eyes that shone like moons, casting light onto the dead wattle grunt and illuminating the dead creature more than I would care to see. They say the eyes of a bumpkle hypnotize and put the unfortunate gazer into a state of shock and terror. Had we not immediately frozen, they may have turned to us as well. A bumpkle has two mouths. One giant seam hidden beneath its hairy head, filled with thin, needle-like teeth. The other is underneath its foot, the toes acting as teeth that clamp and fasten onto flesh as the inner ring of jaws greedily bites off bits of flesh. The sound that the bumkles were making was atrocious. We stood there silently for the next half hour. By the time the bunkles began retreating into the dark, the waddle grunt was unrecognizable. A pile of cracked bones and entrails. The dropper flies began falling from the branches of the trees above to pick at the few remains. We followed the ashen trail back into the clear, where a flood of relief greeted us. I would not return to the Black Rock Forest again for years. The Eskelberg Forest. 
while not as large or as dense as either the soft needle or black rock forests, the Eskelberg forest and its singing groves are a popular destination for commoners and explorers alike. Despite its name, the Eskelberg forest is not actually a forest and is instead a single large organism. Each of the trees in the forest is a runner sent up by a large and complex root system which is impeded in Eskelberg Peak. The trunks of these runners are hollowed out, and there are openings to the hollow interiors on the tops and sides of the trunks. Air will often funnel in through the top opening and blow out through the side openings, creating a variety of tones. The leaves on the branches of these trees grow in a curled, funnel-like shape. The constant production of tones by the runners fills the groves with a flowing, improvisational melody, providing a pleasant acoustic background for visitors. This constant stream of sound is then funneled into the forest leaves, into the centers of the spirals where the air once again enters into the inner workings of the runners. Wood nymphs and scholars who have studied the groves believe that this constant passing back and forth of music between the trees is the forest thinking to itself. Among these, there is a small following which believes the forest is only asleep and that the great wood beast will one day awake and rise out of Eskelberg Peak. The unique hollowed-out trunks of the Eskelberg forest provide habitats for numerous small animals, including sizable populations of burnt waffle and zootru. The forest is also the only location in which the bulb-nut squirrels are found naturally. This vibrant ecosystem makes the forest popular among amateur naturalists and seasoned explorers alike. Carifer Door Shards Approximately 200 years ago, in the Second Dwarven Empire of the North, King Kerthic IV commissioned a massive treasury to be constructed within Mount Kerifer in order to house the kingdom's supply of gold. On the southwestern face of the mountain, an enormous door to the treasury was placed in the cliff face. This door was enchanted to only recognize and allow members of the royal court into the treasury. Unfortunately, King Kerthic and his builder had not anticipated the battering rams and catapults of the northern giants. While the Carifer door was shattered, its many fragments retained parts of its enchantment. Each shard took on its own personality and name. The shards are capable of projecting their thoughts into the mind of their holder, usually in the form of images, songs tales and conversation. The shards can also communicate with each other if they are in close enough proximity, and two holders which are close enough together can hold a conversation of thoughts through their shards. Following the breaking of the door, the Carifer shards were collected and dispersed throughout the fantastic lands. In many places they were cut, polished, and sold as exotic jewellery, in other places, the shards were treasured for their eccentric and curious personalities, and were used by artists as muses of inspiration. I myself carried a Carifer shard companion named Hathud with me on a necklace for several years. The Lightning Struck Titan
It is a mercy to all of the fantastic lands that the lightning-struck Titan only awakens with the passing of Vamaroth's storm every three hundred years in the southern jagged mountains of Kor. The beast resembles a beetle or hermit crab with a dragon's head, covered in a goliath pyramid of stone and dirt that accumulates over its three hundred year slumbers. A huge, crumbling, spiraling tower resides on its back, built by the same sorcerer whom the storm that awakens the beast is named after. Vamaroth came to the Fantastic Lands two thousand years ago in a search to build a place where he could practice and perfect his art of weather spells. The jagged mountains proved ideal to him with their isolation and formidable appearance. He began to construct his tower at the plateau of the highest mountain he could find. It would take him fifteen years to complete. As soon as the final brick was placed, he began to call forth a thunderstorm more powerful than any the mountains had seen. The lightning surged from the spire of Vamaroth's tower to the base and below, each strike stirring the beast he had built his tower upon. With earth-shaking might, the titan stretched its legs and rose, a thousand-foot goliath that bellowed as the storm caused it pain, while at the same time restoring it to life. The lightning-struck titan began to move once more, eating huge chunks of earth and stone from the cliff sides with its toothed maw. And all the while, the storm raged above its back, following the titan as it lumbered through the jagged mountains. Vamaroth himself perished as his tower collapsed with each step the giant took. The dragons sought at once to try and stop the beast, or at the very least impede it, but the titan was impervious to all magic. It was an ancient, long-forgotten creature, a force of nature, and it seemed its rampage would destroy all of the fantastic lands. Finally, a group of mages led by the sorceress named Talia arrived. They cast a spell that created the great winds to drive the storm away from the lightning-struck titan, and the beast began to slow as the energy gained from the storm disappeared. It managed to return to its resting place before falling asleep once again, and the lands it raised fell silent. Talia and her group were hailed as heroes, and they turned their efforts to restoring the damage done by the Titan. Afterwards, they would guard the jagged mountains until their deaths, continuing to strengthen the enchantment that kept Vamaroth's storm and the lightning-struck Titan apart. However, the two are bound to meet again. Vamaroth's storm returns every three hundred years from its banishment in the howling sands to reawaken the beast below. The last time the titan awoke was a hundred and eighty-seven years ago. I fear the day when we must once again prepare for the worst. Monolith to Heaven in the flat southeastern plains of Xianu, a group of creatures live in a group that grows by a mere one member at the beginning of each year, the monoliths to heaven. 
Each monolith is less flesh and more stone. Made of obsidian, they are shaped like a rugged ellipse, with a singular large hole running through the top portion like a downward staring eye. Two spindly legs jut out, then fall to the ground from that center of the monolith, legs that look like they would never be able to support a creature of a monolith's mass. However, the monolith's deep magical ties with the stars allow them to stand for the long walk they must undertake every new year. Monoliths travel between two locations, and two locations only. One is the site of a meteor, a crater that spans a thousand feet wide. The other is tomb for Giang the Magician, the monolith's creator. Known for his near-eccentric obsession with the stars, Giang frequently ventured to the Xianu Plains with stargazing gear, constantly looking for what he claimed to be the heavenly planet. Such a planet is vaguely described in old Xianu texts, but only as a folktale, a legend. However, until his dying breath, Giang believed the heavenly planet to be more than just a myth. And so he created the monoliths to carry out his work when he himself could no longer achieve his dream. Until the week before the new year, the monoliths remained buried in a ring around Giang's tomb. During this time, the holes in their bodies create various patterns as the sun rises and sets. Once Eve falls on the week before the new year, the monoliths rise from their slumber one by one. And it is during this time one can see Giang's determination to ascend to the heavenly planet. The tallest current monolith towers a staggering 600 feet in the air. Each following monolith is 50 feet shorter for a total of a dozen. As the sky darkens, the monoliths begin a slow 50-mile walk to the crater site, with only the starlight to guide them as they walk in descending order. They almost look like the stairs of a giant's castle. On the dawn of the new year, when they have gathered in the center of the crater, the birth of a new monolith begins. Still in their descending order, the light of the new sun shines through the holes of the monoliths to the ground, illuminating the spot where a new member will rise from the ground, born from the fragments of the meteor that struck the fantastic lands 2,000 years ago. This new member will become the new tallest monolith, the next stepping stone to Giang's fabled world. Once the new monolith takes its place at the front of the line, the stone giants begin their walk back to the grave of their master, where they bury themselves once again until the next year. Note, people. In all my travels throughout this fantastic world, the note people that live in the eastern plains of Darius stand out as the most unique and wondrous creatures. Living music. Created 200 years ago when a sorceress called Eliana sought to create enchanted musical instruments capable of producing the most beautiful sounds ever heard. Instead, she created the note people. 
As the spell intended to make a symphony progressed, the ink and notes inscribed on the enchantment papers quite literally flew off the parchment and began to coalesce in a swirl of sound and symbols. They took on the shape of their creator, creating the first Note Woman. Eliana would grow old, but the Note Woman continued to stay with her, forever playing music when her creator desired it. Eliana would create dozens more of its kind before she died at an age of 152 years. The note people themselves would carry her body away into the plains they now inhabit. The sound that the harp reeds and grasses make while blowing in the wind greatly appeals to their kind. The note people today are just as, if not more, talented in magic and music. They delight in having visitors to entertain, oftentimes taking whoever comes across them by the hand and bringing them to its friends. It is rather odd to be touched by a note man. The notes and lines that make up their bodies are nearly flat, working together to make a three-dimensional form. Yet they feel cool, almost like thin, delicate paper. They can shift their bodies into whatever form they please. I've even seen note people exchange and mix their music to produce sounds that they could not accomplish on their own. Note people have a special affinity for the starlight moths that provide light to the plains in the night. Being inky black themselves, note people will often try to capture the starlight moths within their bodies to make themselves visible for nightly performances. It was during such a performance that I was able to witness the note people for the first time on a warm summer evening. With the harp reeds and grass humming softly along with the music of the note people, it will be an experience I will never forget. Ocean Sippers It was while visiting to the fishing ports of the south that I learned of the wondrous Ocean Sippers. The sun-tanned fishermen I spoke to had encountered them almost daily on their voyages and had collected several objects of study. Among these were several sketches, pellets, and even an injured specimen that they had taken aboard. At first glance, a sipper looks to be some kind of large, iridescent bird, similar in appearance to a pigeon. On closer inspection, however, it becomes apparent that, in place of feathers, the creature is covered in a material with a blend of traits of feathers and scales. Like scales, pieces of the material have the texture of the scales of a fish and are firmly connected to the body. However, the shape of the pieces are more similar to the feathers one would see in any other seabird, and even resemble down in some places. Sippers are capable of breathing in both air and fresh water, and spend most of their time as part of a flock in a large bubble of water which drifts high above the iridescent sea. This bubble follows the course of schools of small fish or prawns. At night, the sippers dive from their bubble to the surface of the ocean, where they skim off and swallow a layer of prey and seawater before returning to their abode. The combination of seawater and food is then processed in their guts until they regurgitate it as fresh water and a small pellet composed of salt and the remains of their prey. 
The water is added to their bubble to compensate for evaporation, while the pellet is tossed down toward the ocean below. Fishermen will often collect the pellets, either for their supply of iridescent salt or in order to sell them to tourists at the ports. Unsen The Unsen is one of the most elusive creatures in all of fantasy. I fear that I have little to report on it, as, in spite of all the evidence of its existence, no man, dragon, elf, or dwarf has made a clear observation of it. There's even still doubt as to whether the Unsen is a single beast or an entire species. These unknown elements only add to its intrigue, which is why I've included it in this collection. The Unsen moves at an extremely rapid pace, which is the main reason it has been able to evade observation or capture for all these years. It also seems to know instinctively where its hunters are looking, constantly moving out of sight or hiding behind secluded cover. It never seems to leave behind any hair or scent, only its footprints. The trail of prints that the Unsen leaves are highly unusual and are the only aspect of the creature's existence which can be readily observed. The prints are composed of a single large circle about the size of a deer's hoof, with two smaller circles on the sides of it and another two circles behind it. Once made, a large jet of steam will rise out of each print, mixing in with the morning mists that are present when the Unsen is most active. Interestingly, the arrangements of the prints may change over time, and have indicated at different times that the Unsen has anywhere between one and twelve legs. Zira Lasp in a fitting, yet bitter sense, the Zeralasps will be the last entry in this storybook, as they were the last creature of the fantastic lands at the end of the war, and the first to die out in the new beginning. Although their bodies resembled that of a swan, their skin was more attuned to that of the pearl-crested dolphins that once swam in the iridescent seas to the south. Their eyes were of the deepest blue, their wings forever softly shining like fluid ivory, their mouths a smooth, toothless bill that curved ever slightly so upward. They were capable of taking a human form as well, resembling angels and awing all those they passed. As beautiful as they were intelligent, the Zeralasp were a vain and conceited race of creatures, who forever squabbled with the dragons over whose wisdom and looks were superior and so were disliked by a great number of the fantastic land's inhabitants, for whom the dragons were born leaders and advisers. As a result, the Zeralasp secluded themselves from all other beings for nearly a millennia, constructing a citadel of their own to live apart from those they deemed inferior. They ignored all pleas for help in times of calamity, and rejected all offerings of friendship. It was not until the third awakening of the lightning-struck titan that the Zeralasp was seen again. Vamorov's storm returned with terrifying ferocity, and the titan rose with its strength multiplied tenfold. Half of the magician's council perished in the ensuing fight with the beast, along with nearly a hundred dragons, a thousand birds, and a thousand more spirits. And still the Zeralasp refused to act. 
And so the Maker himself came to the Ziralasp, his face dark with fury, his eyes normally full of compassion, brimming with icy rage. He spurned their race, accused them of being petty cowards who watched as their world burned around them. For their vanity, he cursed their citadel, enchanted it so that no Ziralasp could ever set foot in it again, then covered it in the ashes of those killed by the Titan, as a reminder of the suffering the Ziralasp could have helped prevent. Overcome with despair of what they had lost and what they could have had, the Ziralasp vowed to never turn their backs on the rest of the fantastic lands again, and charged into the center of the Titan's path. Side by side with the dragons they once despised and the master they adored, the Ziralasp beat back the beast to its mountain once again. The Titan fell back into its slumber, but the grief and devastation brought about lingered for decades to come. The Ziralasp worked with renewed fervor in rebuilding to make up for all the time they had shut themselves away. They became the chief architects of the fantastic lands and filled this world with their incredible and intricate handicraft. This lasted for another thousand years, and life prospered. And then, less than three decades ago, the Great War began, and all the Ziralasp had or ever would create was destroyed in the calamity that followed. Once again, the Maker came, but this time his eyes held only grief as he was forced to smite those who had fanned the flames of destruction. The Ziralasp desperately tried to bring back peace, but to no avail, and so they fell into despair. When the last buildings finally crumbled, the Ziralasp had turned black from the ash and smoke. Their blue eyes turned bloody red from grief. As the surviving others filed out of the fantastic lands, the Ziralasp stayed behind, silent as the stones of their cities. And within these ruins they remain, turned to stone as the suns set for the final time and the world turned cold. SCP-1762 was written by O.Z. Ouroboros. Our narrator and host is John Grills. Traveler is Graham Rowett. Our music is created by the incredible Tom Rory Parsons. And I'm your showrunner and sound designer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our script curator is Jesse Hall. And our transcriber is Cheyenne Bramwell. Our producer is Tom Owen. And this is a Bloody Disgusting podcast. For more information, visit bloody-disgusting.com.